Welcome to Reach, your platform to connect with other executive assistants and acquire game-changing knowledge and perspective. Reach is designed to inspire your workday, guide you through pivotal moments in your career, and transform you into the executive assistant you've always wanted to be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Reach. This is your host, Jessica Van. I'm the founder and CEO of Maven Recruiting Group. And today I have a professor with us. Uh, this is Professor Juliana Schroeder. Welcome, Juliana. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. I am so excited to have you. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to for a long, long time. I've been, I think I've been recruiting you to join us for almost two years. <laughs> so <laughs> this, is, this has been a long time coming. Um, Juliana is the Harold First Chair in Management Philosophy and Values Professor at the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business. Uh, that is a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Um, she just recently gave a TED Talk on how to connect better in light of the loneliness epidemic that is plaguing American culture, which we will link in the show notes. It's a fascinating watch, and I definitely encourage you guys to uh, to view it after this. Um, Schroeder is a behavioral scientist who researches the psychological processes by which people think about the minds of other people, particularly in the context of our workplaces. The attributions that people make about other people's minds are significant because they affect decisions about how we decide to interact with one another, how we engage, such as whether to help somebody or harm them. So for instance, determining whether a negotiation partner is trustworthy will affect your willingness to cooperate with that person. Another tributary of Juliana's research deals with negotiations, and she actually teaches the negotiations and conflict resolution course at the Haas School of Business. So we figured she would be the absolutely perfect guest to give us the 411 on all things salary negotiation related, which I know comes up quite a bit for this audience. So once again, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to to talk with you today. We are going to pick your brain. This might be the densest outline we've ever we've ever it's put together ambitious. for a guest. It's very ambitious, so we're going to do our best. Right? We're, yeah. Um, so let's just start with a little bit of background. Can you tell us about how you came to specialize in this particular area of behavioral psychology? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I actually thought I was going to be um, in the hard sciences. I thought I was going to be a chemist growing up. I was really excited about. Um, you know, the idea of doing research and discovering new knowledge. I went to like a, a high school that was really nerdy for science and tech. And then I, uh, I got to college and I took my first like behavioral science, like a social science class. It was a psychology class, quickly followed by an econ class. And I was like, oh, this is it. Like, this is so fascinating. I love kind of getting inside the head of humans. You know, we're surrounded by humans. They're like, but understanding them better and understanding ourselves better is like the area of research that I'm really excited about. And so that was kind of my, just that first class was sort of an epiphany point for me. It was like, oh, wow, this is really what I'm interested in. Um, and then um, right out of college, I had like an experience where I was, you know, very, very lonely. I kind of went through, I think we've all been through phases where we feel very, very lonely. And um, I went back to grad school and st- started studying that, you know, why, why was I so lonely? Why did I not 
um, connect better with others, what, what was kind of the science of what, what was happening there with me. And so I kind of became interested in that from a personal perspective and got into this research on like mind perception, which as you, you know, prefaced so well, Jessica, it's really about like, how do we read people? Like, how do we get into other people's heads? Like, how do we, how do we come to make judgments about them? How does that inform the way that we behave around them? What are the implications for the workplace for that? Um, reading people, like they're really important implications for negotiations. So that's like the class I teach. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about my kind of path there. Yeah. And we can also link this as well in the show notes, but you have a, a lecture that you give on negotiation that's available on YouTube, which I really enjoyed watching. I mean, I, I feel like in our work, we do a ton of, of negotiating as well. I mean, negotiation is, is a way of life, right? So I thought it was a really um, great, great lecture to observe. So going back to this TED lecture that you recently gave on the topic of loneliness, um, it's such an apropos topic for today's workforce. You know, there are so many of us now working remotely, um, which often means working alone, um, more, much more so than ever before after, you know, after COVID and, and just kind of the way that um, the workforce seems to have been permanently altered. So I'm curious, you make a statement in your talk that combating loneliness means making the deliberate choice to connect even when all you want to do is avoid, because we now know that living in the real social world is psychologically and physically a far healthier choice. And you go on to say that, you know, whether it's simply saying hi to somebody on the train or at the grocery store or when you're out on the hike, that talking to a loved one um, and picking up the phone rather than texting, it's these choices that may feel small, but they have the power to really change us from feeling lonely to feeling connected. So, I'm curious, you know, given your research on on the subject, what are your personal thoughts on how psychologically healthy or unhealthy it is for for this workforce to be working largely in a fully remote setting? And, you know, is this, is, you know, I, I go back to like a couple of years ago, and even to this day, so many of our candidates are really pushing hard and advocating hard for either a fully remote work environment or a mostly remote work environment. And as a psychologist who focuses on this, it's so interesting to think about, well, what are the actual implications of that on our health? And is it actually the best thing for us? So I'd love to hear your comments on that. Yeah, thank you so much for um, even yeah pointing out the different statements I made in the, the talk, which anyone who's interested in that topic can watch it on, on YouTube now. It's, it's out live. Um, but I, I really... Uh, there's a big debate about around remote work right now. And um, I do think that remote work is is a part of the loneliness epidemic. Um, if you've watched, if you've looked at the statistics on loneliness um, in the US and even across the globe, um, you'll see that there was a big uh, recent spike in loneliness uh, that occurred. And it very much kind of coincided with the remote work movement, with the pandemic. Um, and that spike in loneliness was really interesting because uh, it occurred, um, there was the most loneliness occurring among um, the older adults. Um, and of course, the oldest adults, right? So some of them were saying that they, uh, you know, never see other humans at all, like, right, they're, they rarely see them, right? So it kind of, it makes it sad, but it makes sense why there would be such a spike in that particular group. Uh, but the next, like, biggest spike is among uh, the young adults, so it's the 18 to 25 year olds and both of those two groups, um, even right now. So the pandemic has kind of 
um, mostly over, you know, in the sense that like, but, and yet the loneliness epidemic continues like the, the, it hasn't, the spike has not reduced, right? So it maintains, you know, people are still reporting being very lonely. And in fact, um, there was a certain general report that was released on this recently in the U.S. And, um, you know, essentially they have a cutoff for what they would call like debilitating loneliness, which is people that report on like a one to five scale being at like four or five and like reporting that every single day they're feeling lonely at some point during the day. And uh, 66% of older adults are in that category. So two thirds of them and also two thirds of young people are in that category. They're like, they're, they're experiencing this debilitating loneliness. And it, the research really shows that it is, is terrible for your mental health, right? It's, 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 you know, it brings people like, not only do you just feel sad, it's just depressing, they feel anxious, you know, it kind of is comorbid with all these other kind of negative feelings and things. But also, it has, you know, really problematic consequences for your physical health. And I point to these like meta analyses that Julianne Holt Lundstedt and her team have been conducting on um, the, basically the physical health consequences of various different ways of tracking loneliness. And um, kind of the upshot is what they find is that, you know, being lonely, whether it's subjectively reporting it in a survey or um, not being around people in an objectively measurable way, like living alone like not going in to ever see your work colleagues, uh, those things are as bad for your physical health as, um, you know, smoking 15 cigarettes a day, (laughs) for example, like that's a comparison that they use in the studies or um, being obese, you know, never exercising, never getting your flu vaccines, like all all of those things are pretty commensurate with the effect, the morbidity effects that loneliness has. So it's very compelling and and disturbing that, you know, to think about how the remote work movement has affected our loneliness. Um, So I think, you know, where I fall on it is that there are kind of pros and cons. So I'm sympathetic to the people who, you know, are reporting that it feels, you know, more convenient, uh, that they can avoid their commute and that there's, you know, there's more flexibility. But I think what you lose in the remote work environment is that um, you're not having what we call like the water cooler conversations. So those are those, you know, spontaneous moments where you're able to connect with someone um, either in a way that facilitates productivity, like, you know, getting a different viewpoint on something you're working on or a way that would facilitate um, an actual like intimate social connection. Uh, You just don't have those in the remote environment. And or if you have them, you have to schedule them. Like so you have to schedule social events, uh, which I think doesn't quite lead to kind of the same results. And so I think that people should be sort of really cognizant of what are the longer term psychological costs and consequences for them from having to be in remote work environments. And are there ways to counteract that, whether it's, you know, making sure there's one day a week that people are going in or, you know, just being really cognizant and trying to schedule in those social events. And when you do that, I think, you know, we've done some research on this. You've got to be careful about the way you do it, right? So I think like having group conversations on Zoom are often like that's not a great way to socialize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's just awkward and no one really yeah. ends up, you know, if so if you're going to do something like that, make sure you have breakouts where people can at least have one-on-one conversations and have a chance of like having a real connection with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it reminds me of, you know, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> because I, I feel like that 
you know, a lot like what you're describing is sort of the unanticipated consequence of this, you know, ask that so many people had for so long. And now, you know, a couple of years later, we're starting to see some of the re- residual effects of that. So I'm curious, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, counteracting the social isolation, right? Is yeah. is there a threshold that you've seen in the research where you can point to examples where, where, for instance, you know, people who get together once every two weeks are far less lonely than those who never get together, or those who get together once a week with their colleagues report less loneliness. I mean, is there some kind of tipping point where maybe it's not that people need to be together in that kind of setting every single day, but there is some some threshold where some interaction is substantially beneficial to their well-being? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I don't think that there's a particular tipping point that the research has identified at this point, although your um, suggestions are making me think about a movement that's happening in the medical world, and I've been talking to physicians about this. It's called social prescribing, which is like some, you know, if you're feeling bad, instead of prescribing you medicine, I might say, Jessica, every week, go walk around the lake with your with a girlfriend and like <laughs> make yeah. a connection and talk to them, you know, once a week. And that's your prescription, essentially. And so it's essentially, yeah. you know, a kind of a new movement of thinking about holistic health and thinking about ways in which we can reduce depression and anxiety by giving people better social experiences. I guess I would say that one thing that people don't always think about when they are considering their own levels of connectedness and loneliness is thinking about the different facets of your social life. So I think there's the kind of community, which is sometimes we we call them the minimal social connections. So it's like, do you have people that you say hi to, you know, like neighbors, colleagues, like they don't have to be deep conversations. These can be sort of more of the, um, the more superficial, like small talk, like it's just like a friendly face. You know, that makes you feel like you're part of a community that you're hearing, you know, there's there's information being passed among the community that you're part of. So you're kind of feel like you're part of a group. So I think there's there's that level. And then there's the more like intimate, deeper connections. Like, do you have, you know, closer connections with friends and family members that I think people traditionally think about those. It's like they're thinking about their their close support networks. But I think you have to balance between both of them. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, even let's say you have, you know, two really close friends, that's great as long as you can always rely on them. But if you have no kind of community or like group membership, that's still gonna it's still gonna create a problem in your psychology. So I think people should think about both of those things in terms of their social lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's an important point because it's not I think we're sort of assuming that the only way that people um, enjoy some kind of social life or element is through the workplace. And that's that's patently false, right? I mean, there's a lot of ways to, I think, connect uh, socially and or, you know, to your community. And it may it may be easiest to do that through the workplace because it's, you know, you're you show up every day and you're there for eight, nine, 10 hours, whatever the case may be. But there are other ways to compensate for some of the the loneliness that you may be experiencing as a result of the fact that you're working remotely. I think that's true. But I also think that you're right, that it's it's essentially a missed opportunity. Like if you are not having any social connection in your workplace, you know, that is, like you said, eight, nine, 10 hours a day where you are like missing that opportunity. Um, and it's actually the statistics on this are kind of wild, which is that. Um, you know, people spend about a third of their waking hours 
uh, at work, you know, whether it's remote or in person, and yet they are reporting that, you know, almost none of their close friends um, come from the workplace. Um, and so we've actually done some research on this and we find that workplaces tend to be naturally um, what we call like objectifying. <laughs> and when I say objectifying, I'm referring to like seven different facets, but the most dominant one is instrumentality, which is that people feel um, that they are not valued for being like, a, you know, their full humanity in the workplace. It's more like they're valued for like their ability to complete one particular task, like to do the thing that they've been hired to do. You know, that is, I mean, that's kind of the nature of work, especially in America, is very characterized by like instrumentality. Like you were hired to do this thing. And of course, like the gig economy and, other, you know, it's even more kind of instrumental or task based. Um, and, and so, you know, in a way people sign on to that contract when they work, but like the downside of it is that when you start to, you know, feel like you're putting in so much time, especially into a company, uh, that you're, they're only valuing you for this one thing, you know, it, it starts to feel, it doesn't, it feels objectifying as, you know, the word that we use, you feel like you're kind of just like an object, you're a tool, um, for the company to do the thing that they want. And that is, you know, it's, it's bad for people's mental health. Um, it, you know, makes them be less likely to want to stay at the company. We've identified lots of different consequences of this. And um, organizations can do things to reduce the levels of objectification and, and felt instrumentality of their employees, right? So even um, one of the key predictors that we find of objectification organizations is um, strategic and calculative thinking. And so essentially what this is, is that there are some organizations that are characterized by like everything that you do is basically a calculation. So like, that's kind of like this conversation with you right now, I might be like, okay, I'm going to spend one hour and what am I going to get out of it? You know, and I'm doing this like, you know, cost benefit analysis, essentially this calculation in my mind. And that's like a very unpleasant way to have interactions. Mm-hmm. And- I hope that's not how you're thinking about this conversation. <laughs> Right, and, and and if yeah. I were like that, would probably kind of bleed over, and like you would recognize it eventually, and it would make it a worse interaction, right? Like it's not, it's like you're like I'm, I'm not valuing just cover Jessica, and so it's kind of interesting how you know we do these cost benefit analyses, and and I think they're promoted in a lot of workplaces. Like workplaces encourage people. Like you can even think about workplaces where people are tracking their time. Like every minute that they spend is like going into a time log somewhere. It makes it really salient, you know, that you're having all these trade-offs and it takes away from like kind of the true, you know, social nature of any interaction. It makes everything feel objectifying. It's just kind of miserable. Um, And so you can think about, you know, organization, we talk a lot to like leaders about how they can promote more like humanizing and less objectifying workplace environments so that people have a chance to like be able to form friendships and like, you know, actually have some real social connection as opposed to just, you know, focusing on their jobs and being instrumental all the time. Yeah. Yes. Um, I have a question as as you're talking that comes to mind, which is, is there a difference in the data and in your research between someone someone who works or lives in solitude versus someone who is lonely? And it, is it a foregone conclusion that being solo or being in isolation is equivalent to lonely? Because can there can there be examples of people who are completely content in solitude? And what what have you seen the data around that? 
Yeah, that's such a great question. It, I, I totally think that solitude and loneliness are not the same thing. And I also think everyone has different set points. So we often talk about um, basically people need to recalibrate their social um, social diets. Um, so the theory that I've been doing research on is what we call under sociality. And the idea is that um, there are lots of contexts in which people could actually be a little bit more social and it would benefit both their own well-being and, and the other person's well-being, and yet they choose not to. Um, and so these might be little moments where like you could have talked to someone you didn't know and you choose not to, or you could have reached out and done something nice for somebody that you didn't know, but you chose not to. And we know a lot about the psychology around why people often choose not to in those cases. Um, and so it suggests that there might be like small tweaks that people can do kind of throughout their lives and both at work and in their personal lives that can um, lead them to be a little bit more social. But I think these are things that are like small and kind of on the margin and every person is going to be a little bit different, right? And they'll have different tweaks they might want to do. So for you, Jessica, you might have like amazing, you know, close relationships, but like you don't have, you don't have like the community or something, or you, you would never consider talking to a stranger. So like maybe that's something where that could be something you, you know, you play with a little bit, you work on that a little bit. Um, Another thing that's kind of interesting is that even though I do believe people have different like balance points, I don't think it co corresponds with like things like introversion and extroversion as much as people mm -hmm. think. So what we find in our research is that there are a lot of personality variables, um, including extroversion, but also like neuroticism and um, culture, like the cultures people come from that affect how social they think they should be or they want to be. Um, but in fact, those affect people's like predictions about how their social experiences will go more than they affect the reality of their social experiences. And so specifically what I mean by that is like, for example, introverts, they, they tend to think a lot of their social experiences will be unpleasant, uh, especially with people like they don't know very well or like kind of moving a little outside your comfort zone, right? Or someone who might be a little bit different from you. So like introverts really reliably in our research report that they don't, they don't think those, those experiences will go well and they don't want to do them. They don't want to engage in them. But then in experiments where you actually make introverts do that, like have that conversation with the stranger or act extroverted for a period of time, even like weeks. Um, some of the, there's a study that recently came out where, you know, they had introverts acting extroverted for weeks. Um, they actually do report that they feel it improves their well-being and improves their happiness just as much as extroverts. So that's kind of amazing. Um, in terms of like how people handle solitude, there's been some really well-publicized research that suggests that most people find solitude to be kind of aversive. And, uh, and I'm talking about like solitude where you don't have other things to distract you. And, and one paper, most compellingly, basically showed that people would prefer to um, electrically shock themselves Ooh. instead of being inside. You know, like they basically they like prefer like aversive, like put your hand into ice water and like, you know, electric shock wow. as opposed to just like being alone with their thoughts. And when you and, say solitude, so you're describing solitude as, just so I understand, solitude is no, no, what? No, no social media to engage with. No, no shows to watch. No movies, no books. Like it's literally just you in the moment. Yeah. So on in, your that own? Paper, in that particular paper, it was just right. Being alone with your thoughts and not doing anything. So you just have to think, um, which, yeah, which is sort of the a very extreme version of it. 
Um, however, you know, I think I don't think this is a great I don't think this is good news for society as a whole, because I think, you know, we do need to learn how to be alone with our thoughts and um, feel comfortable with that. You can almost think of it as like a conversation with yourself, right? Sometimes you just need to talk with yourself, <laughs> uh, which is what solitude is. And so first, I think the psychology on like the fact that loneliness, or sorry, solitude is generally aversive and generally leads to loneliness. And this is why um, like solitary confinement is, you know, it's essentially a form sure. of torture, right? Like it, it's torture. Like it hurts humans to be in solitary confinement and it's torture, just like physical torture, you know, it hurts you. Um, but I think that, you know, there are certainly ways of enjoying your solitude. There isn't, you know, I think maybe to the kind of point that you were making, Jessica, you can, um, be in solitude, but with something to do, like you're reading a great book or you're, so I do think, it's a balance. And I also think when you're, when you're considering your own well-being, there's lots of different facets of well-being. So there's like joy and happiness in a given moment, right? Kind of like affect, we call that. And so sometimes, you know, being in a social environment, like kind of spikes your affect, right? But then there's like longer term life satisfaction, <laughs> um, kind of like the depth of the kind of well-being experience, which, you know, maybe for that, you need a kind of the right balance, right? If you're in social experiences all the time, you're going to be getting not the kind of right balance to overall have a satisfying and meaningful life. Um, and so I think, again, people sort of need to find their own set points and their own balances, like what makes them uh, feel happy. But I would still say that the research suggests that on average, I think most people's set points, like they're, they're being under social, they could be more social for their own good. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's such an interesting takeaway to to sit with. I mean, I, I agree. I think I think it is very individual individualized. The set point. Uh, I mean, I, I have a friend who's actually designing a a silent retreat experience mm-hmm. um, that is completely isolated. It's it's literally in the Sonoran deep in the Sonoran desert. And when I say deep, I'm talking like 360 degree views of nothing, just just cactuses. Um, and and his whole um, hypothesis is that, you know, that we spend so much time avoiding ourselves and that, you know, the, the idea is to journey inward and to remove the distractions to be able to, to promote more, um, more reflection and less of this kind of constant, you know, lust for distraction and entertainment and stimulation and, you know, all the things, right? Yeah. So there's like that, there's that example, which is so sort of, but, but granted, right. I, he's I not. That. But also, I guess I would say that like, when I talk about social experiences, I'm kind of like talking about like real connection where you like look at someone and you make eye contact and you, you know, basically like rich kind of social connection where you're like sharing the contents of your minds with the other person. I talk about how the art of conversation a bit in that, in that Ted talk. Um, and, and so I also am kind of against the kind of like buzz and distraction of things like social media, which I think is a total misnomer. I don't think most social media is like built to be like truly social in any meaningful way or even like going out to parties and things. And and this is where I think, again, like there's some individual variation. Like when I talk about you need to go out and have more social experiences, like an extrovert will interpret that differently than an introvert. And an introvert might have like an amazing social experience, but it's more of a one-on-one conversation, right? Whereas an extrovert might go to a party or something. And so I do think that, you know, you can have these kind of like meaningful one-on-one social engagements that are 
also, you know, help to take you away from the distraction and the buzz of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I do like that kind of broader philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, it was the one of the points that you make in your TED talk was so interesting about how, you know, there's just this big push for all the all these conveniences, right? The convenience of Instacart, the convenience of whatever, Amazon deliveries, and and now it's connected to Whole Foods and Amazon can deliver your Whole Foods thing. And all of these things, I, I just learned of a drone company that can airdrop your, uh, your Grubhub order. So you literally have completely humanless, frictionless interactions at every single step, right? If you, if you so desire, you can interface over the computer or over your app to get your food. You can have an airdrop by a drone to your front door and you will never have to engage with anybody, small talk or, or meaningful talk ever again, right? And so I, I thought that was really an interesting point in your talk where you talk about, you know, balancing kind of the convenience factors of these things with, with, um, with the broader consequences for how we interact socially. And, it, you know, it's, it, you, you talk about too, like it, when you designed your experiment, um, I think you did it on trains and you did it on buses. Um, and, and, you know, with the idea of looking at um, whether these these kind of um, lightweight interactions were still beneficial to people, and I, I, I know I just came back from a, a plane trip, and it, it was funny because on the way to to Hawaii, I had it's the same same flight, right? Same duration, same seating arrangement, the whole thing. On the way there, I was seated next to a woman who we ended up having just a delightful conversation. I, I mean, I want to say we chatted for. God, like maybe two, two and a half hours of the trip um, and just about everything under the sun. Right. And um, and we were perfect strangers until we sat down next to each other. And I had a great flight. I mean, I was thinking to myself, God, this time just flew by. I took a nap. I had a meal. I chatted with this woman. And on the way back, coming back from Hawaii, I sat next to a man who he and I didn't even say hello to each other. We literally sat next to each other for six hours and said nothing. And that trip dragged for me and nothing else was different. I mean, I had the same meal, I had the same seating, everything else was the same, same, same movies to watch. So it's interesting, you know, looking at the the value as you point to of small talk and, and just even the impact of that alone. And I, I guess, you know, do you see um, a significant difference between the deeper conversations versus the, the lighter conversations in terms of its impact on people to um, feel less lonely? Yeah, it's such a great question. Maybe I'll, I'll just um, mention a little bit more about those experiments that we ran. So when I was doing my PhD at the University of Chicago in, in psychology, I was running these experiments all the time where we were testing out, you know, what what about these minimal social connections, like talking to strangers? Like, does that actually bring people happiness? Um, because we know from you know all this other research that social connection is generally a very important part of people's you know emotional and physical well-being. But you know, it does seem like it's a, talking to strangers seems to be some sort of context where people often think, oh, this this isn't going to go well, or I don't want to do it. And the first thing we did was like capture, we basically look mostly on public transportation. So yeah, like you said, trains and buses. We've also done studies in waiting rooms. We've done them kind of all across the US and we've done them in London at this point. And um, you know, the predictions that people have about what it'll be like to have a conversation with someone they don't know in these different contexts is that they generally think it'll be not a great experience. 
And they're very concerned for the most part in terms of thinking about the beginning of that conversation. Like, how are they going to start it? What if the other person doesn't talk to them? What if they get rejected? There are a lot of fears. And um, this kind of gets to the psychology of I think people tend to overestimate the riskiness of a lot of these interactions. Um, they think of, right, that that there's there's like almost, they almost, you know, assess the risk as if every possible outcome is sort of equally likely. Although there's, in fact, I think like a much more skewed distribution where some outcomes are much more likely than other outcomes. And the outcomes that are most likely are the ones that relate to reciprocity. So all of social interaction is governed by, like I call it the rule of reciprocity, which is like, when I say hi to you, there's a lot of pressure for you to just say hi back to me. Or when I smile at you, you're, I've made it much more likely that you're going to smile back at me. You're kind of taking, you kind of um, are taking and and putting back to me what, what energy I put out to you, right? It's kind of like the Oprah Winfrey line of like, you know, people tend to take the energy they see in the world and kind of put it back out there. And um, that's definitely true of like micro level kind of social interactions. And um, so I think people kind of fail to recognize the, the, the role of reciprocity and they get kind of scared about all these potential risks that I think are, you know, pretty vanishingly unlikely in a lot of the contexts that we live in. Um, and so what we found in these experiments is that when you, you know, actually enroll people into an experiment and, and um, tell them to do something like for the study, go out and have a conversation versus be in solitude versus, you know, do what you would normally do. That's like three different experimental conditions. You find that in fact, like people from all different walks of life end up having a more pleasant experience when they have that conversation um, than when they are in solitude. And we also measure all sorts of characteristics of what the conversations are like. <laughs> to your question, Jessica, you know, how long do they go and who are you talking with and how substantive was it? And did you, you know, exchange numbers at the end, right? And we've had, you know, we've run, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of people through these different experiments. And so we've had all sorts of like the variance of outcomes is kind of amazing, right? So sometimes people have very short conversations. They're just, you know, exchanging pleasantries and smiling at each other. Other times people are talking for six hours on the plane, like you're, you know, experience, <laughs> or they have the train rides that are about an hour long. So they just talk the whole train ride. And, you know, we've had people report that they meet someone that they you know, I'm romantically interested in or like, you know, it's sort of like, I think some people are making real connections uh, through some of these. But um, what's kind of amazing is that, so it's true that people's self-reported enjoyment does correlate a bit with like, for example, the length of the conversation, the longer conversations, people report, you know, more enjoyment on average. But even for the short conversations, you know, it doesn't seem like even, even for like just a couple minutes, people are still reporting like they have this it's a, a mood boost. So they report they feel happier and less sad and that they had a more pleasant commute experience overall, um, even for just short conversations. And so I think, you know, there's even value to those. And so I don't think we can differentiate in my research. You know, the, I think there's different types of value to each of these types of conversations. But I will say that like what this suggests is that even for those ones that you kind of, you know, you sort of, you you mentioned they kind of seem lightweight, right? Like they feel like just sort of smaller. That's why they, they call it small talk. Like even for those, I actually think they have the they have the power to like make us feel less lonely. And especially when you think about how they kind of aggregate up. And so I actually don't even like the term small talk. Like I just feel like that minimizes the value of some of those 
some of those connections because I think I think they matter for people. Um, and even like in the negotiation context, we talk a lot about like in the very beginning when you're getting to know the other person you're negotiating with, like make sure that you you build rapport. And we don't call it small talk because it's not small. It's big. It matters, you know. So what do you call it instead of small talk? You say rapport talk or what? Yeah, but we, we usually just say building rapport, building uh, rapport. which okay. is kind of dry. Maybe I should come up with a better term. Let me think on that. That's a good question. Yeah, that would be a good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but you bring up a good point, which is the whole other facet of your work, which is around negotiation. So um, if if we were to pivot to that area of your expertise and research, um, looking at the art of negotiation... Um, it's interesting that the course that you teach is called the art of negotiation and conflict resolution. And I I think it's interesting that those, those words are paired together because, uh, you know, do you see negotiation as something that is inherently conflictual? And, you know, I'd I'd love to, to get your thoughts on, on that because I think a lot of people do. And so curious, you know, curious how you see that. Yeah, such a great question. So we often talk about two different types of negotiations. One is a more distributive negotiation. Distributive negotiations are characterized as being, um, we call it zero sum. So if I get more of something and I'm negotiating with you, Jessica, then you get less of it, right? So money is kind of the classic example. If I have to pay more as, you know, the buyer, then you're, you know, that's painful for me, but you're going to get more as the seller. And so that's a zero sum issue, and most people tend to think about negotiations this way. It's sort of the natural way. It's like zero sum. You basically win lose is another kind of way people think about it. Like if I win, then you're losing. Like there's going to always be a loser in a negotiation. Um, and then the other type of negotiation is integrative. And integrative negotiations are characterized by the potential for being able to create value. Um, so not everything is zero sum. Sometimes we actually have complementary issues where, you know, I want the same thing that you want. We, you know, we have kind of common ground on it or I care a lot more about it than you care. So we can, you know, trade across issues to create more value for both of us. And so the, the thing is that I, I think it's a, a major false perception in terms of negotiations is that people tend to think about them as being win-lose because the grand majority of the negotiations that people do in their lives both in the workplace and in your personal life, are integrative in nature. And what I mean by that, how do you know if you're an integrative negotiation? So number one is if you have a relationship with the other person, like if you're ever going to see them again, you know, then you really should think of yourself as being in an integrative negotiation and not a distributive negotiation. You want to get to the win-win if you're in, if you're talking about building relationships and if you care about the relationship at all. And I always tell my students, like, be really careful and cognizant. Like, you might think you're not going to see the person again. Like, you think you're in a distributive, but but you might see them again. Like, we live in a very small world, you know, like, people are connected online. Like, you know, you, you, they might be in your network forever. You kind of just, I, I really think you should walk into every conversation and negotiation with anyone, assuming that they're, you know, might be in your network in the future, right? And that is the kind of mindset you should go into it. The other way that you know you're in an integrative negotiation is um, if there's more than one issue involved in the negotiation. I mean, a lot of times people just think about money, right? They're just like, oh, this is just a negotiation about money. And I would say like that is really, that's superficial and it's not the right way to think about it. And almost everything involves more than just money. And so what I kind of encourage people to do is kind of expand 
the set of possible things that they are thinking about, you know, even, you know, reputation, like that could be intangible things. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Matter. And of course, any like promotion or, um, you know, j- job negotiation is going to involve like many, many, many different issues. And so, you know, those are very integrative contexts. So you really want to create value. The relationship matters. You've got tons of different issues on the table. And so, I think again, you know, so I think I think the distributive negotiations might be like you're haggling over the price of a particular thing, like a product in Marrakesh or something. You know, like that might be maybe that's like a distributive, but everything else you do in your life is going to be integrative. Right. Why is it that people tend to dread conversations around money? And I, I, I you know, particularly to to our audience who are for the most part executive assistants. I think that this is a really common fear and common um, common sense of dread of wanting to avoid these conversations. They feel very unmatched oftentimes for these conversations, very ill-equipped or just, you know, sweaty palm, dreadful, like, you know, butterflies in the stomach kind of thing to be able to initiate a conversation. And it, you mentioned money is not all of it. I agree. But I think that societally speaking, money is one thing that makes us feel especially vulnerable. Um, And I think it's, you know, when you're asking for something that makes you feel really vulnerable, I feel like that that tends to exacerbate the nerves around it all. So I mean, why is it that that people dread negotiations so much? And, you know, and specifically money? One is around the identity that I, you know, I'm I'm afraid that I'm gonna if I don't make enough salary, that's gonna hurt you know, who I am as a person. And it like, it becomes so tightly tied up people's psychology that they put, you know, almost too much weight on it. And so they're kind of afraid, you know, it's it's sort of, it's just, they're too personally tied with it. Another is um, worried about like impressions. Like how is the other person going to think of me? Um, And people want to make, you know, a good impression on others and they don't want to appear greedy and then the third one is um, worried about losing the offer. Right. That's that one is really interesting to me, and I I I agree with you, and I I think that so obviously in our work we I mean that's what we do is we deal with job seekers all the time, and I I think that there is definitely a concern, oftentimes, of well if I ask for this. Do I run the risk of alienating somebody? Do I run the risk of pissing them off? Do I run run the risk of jeopardizing my reputation or, you know, coming across as entitled or even, you know, do I run the risk of them reneging the offer, right? So I, I, I think that there's definitely um, some real concern about those things, which I think does contribute to the trepidation. I wonder, though, if you've actually seen any correlation between advocating for oneself or negotiating for something um, and having, you know, having having that uh, actually result in jeopardizing the offer. Like, does that actually play out in a, in a research setting if there's any proof of that? Yeah. I mean, the important thing to remember is that it's very unlikely. It's like vanishingly unlikely. Because the company has spent like, you know, a ton of money and time and resources trying to recruit exactly the right person. And so then once you have that offer, that means a lot. Like that means that the company really 
you know, really wants to keep you. And if they lose you, you know, they have to go back to the drawing board a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So, Tell me about it. And it yeah. takes a lot of time, <laughs> a lot of time, a lot of effort. Absolutely. Right. And this does, you know, vary company to company, right? Like in terms of what the supply and demand is for workers, but still like it, it, in general, that's the case. And so, um, you know, for the most part, it's very rare for a company to rescind an offer after it's been given. And people are more concerned about this than, than is warranted. Um, but I will say that you have to be careful about both how you negotiate and when you negotiate. <coughs> Excuse me. And in particular, um, don't negotiate before you have the offer. <laughs> okay, so that, that is a common uh, mistake that I see, which is, you know, people start negotiating right away. And if you don't have the offer yet, you know, it, that's a little bit too presumptuous. Okay, so you do need to make sure you kind of like wait until that moment when they've like really put all their resources and invested in you and have made you that offer. Um, right. And then you can go ahead and do it. And then when you have that negotiation, like we're, I think we're kind of talking about the job offer context right now. I, want, I think, you know, you have to frame it in the right way. And it's not about you trying to get more. You know, that's, that's not at all what the negotiation is about. It's about... Um, you being the best employee that you can for the company, right? Like it's like, it's about how, how, how the company should care about this too. You know, how am I going to create value? Um, and you, the company should want you to be happy because then you're going to be a productive and better employee and you're going to stay with them more and you're going to, you know, and so that's something that they care about. Right. And so it's really more about like, how am I going to be like appropriately valued so that I can be the best I can be for you? You know, and that's the way the conversation should go. Um, and so it's not about, you know, being overpaid or like not being underpaid. It's like you want to be appropriately valued. Um, and the company should care about that too. And so that's just the way that you should frame it. And um, so they're like, you know, a few instances uh, from, I've, you know, taught probably thousands of students these topics and they always tell me their negotiation stories. Mm-hmm. And there are a few instances I've heard of where an, uh, where an offer was rescinded. And those few instances are cases where like, right, someone negotiated too early, um, or it was um, email negotiations, those can be really tricky. Um, So I often, you know, don't recommend doing that or starting with a a voice conversation and then going to email next. So there's, there's some tips on that. Or like if someone has, you know, there was one case where somebody went around the hiring manager and, you know, basically tried to go above them. Um, Which which sometimes happens, right? You're like, Oh, this isn't I'm not making progress here. So I'm going to go to this other person. And that I think you got to be really careful about that because I think that can that can be very presumptuous. And so those are like the contexts in which people did end up, you know, losing their offers. But it's extremely rare; like it almost never happens. So I think it's it's more of a yeah, it's more of an illusory concern than anything else. Yeah. Well, and I think the point about the timing is really important, right? Because I do know that sometimes you know candidates want to feel like they're being really transparent about what their needs are upfront to avoid any, um, you know, wasted time or effort on, on either party's part. So for instance, that might look like, well, hey, I, I'm interested in this opportunity, but I only want to move forward in the event that you can agree to the fact that I only have to come on site one day a week, that, you know, I'm going to require a relocation bonus and I'm going to, you know, whatever the case may be, I'm going to need an, a, you know, some, a, an equity package to make me whole on the other package that I'm walking away from. And I'm going to need, you know, a compensation of X, Y, Z. So I'm, I'm being like kind of extreme in my example, but I do know that there's some candidates that might think 
or be tempted to think that that being that explicit and transparent on the front end is a benefit because if the client or the company or whoever can't um, can't meet those needs, well, now we've all just avoided a lot of squandered effort, right? But to your point, there needs to be some perceived value and buy-in and agreement around uh, what you can provide and what you can offer if if a negotiation is ever going to be successful and if there's really any reason to negotiate, right? So it sounds like what I'm hearing you say is you got to kind of walk the walk. You got to go through the motions. You got to you gotta dance and, and put on the show if you're going to get the opportunity to even negotiate. Right. I mean, so essentially what you were suggesting was making a list of demands. And perhaps you have an amazing BATNA. The, the term BATNA refers to your best alternative to a negotiated agreement which I basically I'm talking about what's your other option. And so, you know, maybe you have another Jessica, maybe you have an incredible other job offer. And so you're sort of using that as your leverage. That's going to be your fallback. Um, But I would never kind of recommend kind of going in with a list of demands like that. You know, this is like the context where you want to prioritize the relationship and you, and you know, for there are all sorts of things I think people kind of do wrong when in their job negotiations, you know, trying to, um, you know, leverage the company and squeeze them, like, that's never a good idea. Um, In addition, you know, you think you should think about the negotiation, the job negotiations having like two different parts. So part one is like gathering information, like, you know, making sure you've, you know, have, have stated how grateful you are for the offer, like better understanding as much as you can about the salary bands and the different options for job titles and things like that. And then part two, is now here are the things that really matter to me and here's what I'm, you know, missing in my package and can we talk through it, right? And then they usually go back, you know, you have that conversation, um, you know, hopefully you've made a, you know, an appointment that's like an hour long, you're kind of talking through all the details and then usually the person will kind of go back and see what they can do for you and then present you with the next version. And um, and then the, typically that the conversation doesn't go much farther than that. Like, so if you have a really good relationship with the other person, you could, you know, have a little bit more back and forth, but it's not like you're going to keep asking and asking and asking, you know, at some point you sort of, and, and pretty soon, basically, we basically think of it as like one exchange, basically say, okay, either I should, I'll take this. And if I'm still not totally happy with it, then we should have a promotion. You know, maybe we can accelerate the first um, kind of review cycle Yeah. or I'm going to, you know, move on and see what my other options are. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's in the case of, for instance, an agency like ourselves, right? We tend to do a lot of the negotiating on behalf of both our clients and our candidates. And so on, on, I guess for those who are, you know, somewhat negotiation adverse, there's there's value in that because they don't necessarily need to um, be the <clears throat> be the front man to to you know have those conversations about first leading with rapport and establishing gratitude and appreciation. It, it, for the most part, we do that, and so it's everything that you're describing. It's really interesting to hear you talk about it. That that really is actually kind of structurally 
in terms of the format of how we enter into those conversations, almost identical to what we do. It's, you know, it's, it's we're not grateful, but we're establishing the candidate is grateful. We're establishing and reiterating all of the ways in which they're interested. We're establishing um, all the ways in which they feel really validated and, and seen and excited and engaged about the opportunity. And oh, by the way, you know, here's the here's the opportunities that that are still not fully met. And is there any kind of flex in this? Um, so it's interesting to, to hear like that kind of the archetype of what you describe in a um, in an academic context actually is very similar to what we see in in kind of a practical context as well. But, it sounds like you're doing everything right, Jessica. I love you it. Know, I, you know, I'm just giving myself two snaps over here. So. I, I, yes, but that's yeah. yeah. But what about, you know, um, do you have any advice for people that are maybe working through like a third party like us? Like, is there any way that they can be most effective in um, in partnering so that, you know, they're more likely to get the best outcome? Well, I think, yeah, when you're having an, an agent represent you, you need to really trust them. And so I don't know if what your procedure is like, if you have an intake, you know, conversation, like what that looks like and um, making sure that you're, you know, reflecting exactly what the, what the client's, um, you know, priorities are and everything. Right. And, and I think making, so we actually have a, uh, a template that we use in the classroom. It's called a, a negotiation preparation worksheet. <laughs> And the worksheet is, you know, it goes through and, and I have, um, I'm laughing a little bit because I have, you know, all these students I've taught over the last like 10 years. And um, some of them from like 10 years ago will email me just like I had one last week, email me and say, Juliana, I'm I'm doing a negotiation with my company. <laughs> now they're like a senior VP or whatever. And like, uh-huh. here's my prep sheet. It's a tag. Oh. <laughs> you know? I'm like, let's talk through it. And so they're like still doing, they're still doing the sheet and sending over, which I love. But the sheet, you know, I, I'm happy to send it over to you, but like, it's pretty basic. It, it walks you through like, hey, what's your aspiration? You know, what are you looking for? You know, what's your resistance point? What's your walk, you know, what's going to be the walk away? And think of those as, you know, packages. Um, what is, what's your BATNA? What are your, you know, other options? What are your kind of sources of power? You know, where, where might you be able to have, you know, leverage? What's your strategy going to be? You know, what's going to be, um, how do you kind of prioritize across your different option sets? Um, and so it just kind of walks, you know, the person through all the different things they should be thinking about in the negotiation and also has them try to make estimates about the counterpart for all those things. You know, what do you think his aspiration is? Like, what are they looking for? Like, you know, what are their interests? And so I, I, I would hope that, you know, when you're working with an agency, like you've, you've walked, you've, the agency knows all of those things about you. They know your aspiration. They know your, your resistance. Cause that would be the one thing. So I agree that I think an agency can add a lot of value because, you know, they, they have more you know expertise than you do and they, they've done this many times. But the thing I would be a little bit worried about is if, you know, sometimes they're not perfectly aligned with you on your, you know, your walk away point. So, for example, like, you know, you might be willing to you would walk away here, but they think it's over here. And so that can create some, you know, kind of challenges. Um and just making sure that, you know, your interests are, are aligned with them as well, right? So, like, you know, think about it basically adds a third party into the negotiation. So what what are their interests? You know, what um, what's going to be the best outcome for them? And is that aligned with what you want? And do they know all of your information and, and that kind of thing? Yeah. But I, I, first of all, I love that worksheet. And if you're willing to share it, I, I would love to link to that as well, because I think that's such a productive 
exercise to go through in preparing for these conversations. And I mean, again, we're, we're talking about this in the context of a new job offer, but negotiations happen throughout the life cycle of someone's employment. They happen at review cycles. They happen at bonus cycles. They happen at you know anniversary dates and all, all the things, right? There's many, many, many instances throughout a person's employment where they may um, either uh, come up on an opportunity to negotiate, or they may want to initiate an opportunity to negotiate. So this this kind of facility with these sorts of conversations is a really important muscle to cultivate and to develop. I totally agree. I mean, negotiation is incredibly important. It, you know, it, I think it's important for people to practice on their own. It's a way to build relationships. It's a way to create value. I think it's great if they work with agencies as long as you know they're careful that their interests are being represented well. Um, and I'm so glad that we, you know, had this great conversation about it. Um, and I will send you that worksheet. I love that. All right. So I have a final question for you, which okay. is a twist on our usual question, um, which is we always ask people who they would want to support because most of our guests are assistants, but you're, you're not. You're a professor. So my question to you is, if you could have been the student of any one person throughout the course of history... Who would you have chosen as your teacher and why? Ooh, I love that question. Um, I, got, I mean, I think I would have to go with Aristotle. I mean, I, sorry, that sounds like really dry and boring. But like, so he he's, you know, the philosopher that came up with it. So whenever I talk about the social connection research, I will start with the quote by Aristotle. I'm like, Aristotle once said, man is a social animal. And like that is always like that rings true to this day. And here's all the research on why like we are social creatures. And like it kind of came from out of this philosophy. And like he's also done a lot of like amazing work on on mind perception. So I kind of like he's like one of the founding philosophers, you know, that that led to the field of psychology. And so um, I don't know that. Yeah, that's kind of the, the person that comes to mind that I'd be like, wow, talk about like kind of having the opportunity to learn from like one of the greatest minds in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I that's a great answer. Well, uh, you have certainly delivered. I thank you so much for all of these insights. I feel like I we're going to have to listen to this episode and have it on replay because it's definitely a dense one. But there are so many incredible um, takeaways here in terms of just how we how we show up as professionals and how we execute and how we you know, um, navigate the new workplace and all of these, these really, really interesting and brilliant insights. So thank you so much for, for coming on board. I'm sorry that your throat was, was, um, was irritating you toward the end of our conversation, but thank you so much for sticking it out for us. I, I know that this episode will be incredibly beneficial to so many of our listeners. Thank you so much, Jessica. I had a great time talking with you. Reach is brought to you by Maven Recruiting Group, who specializes in placing executive assistants and support staff to the Bay Area's most prominent executives and companies. If you've enjoyed being part of our podcast community and are interested in becoming part of our candidate community, we're currently hiring for roles in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and Los Angeles. You can visit us at www.mavenrep.com to see some of the roles we're currently working on and to submit your resume.